Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and, be attended, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed a dream, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We have dreamed a dream, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit." When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we again thank you for your word. We thank you that your word does not return to you void. And we pray that you would be pleased to use your word this day as you have promised. We ask that you would help us by your spirit to meet us in our weaknesses, whether they are physical, emotional, or spiritual, or mental. May you indeed be pleased to come and and speak to us that we might hear your voice clearly, that we might hearken unto it. And so follow after you in a life that pursues after righteousness and obedience to you. Hear us, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
To say that God is a master storyteller is possibly an understatement, simply because it seems that we can hardly grasp the narrative that He's spoken into being, that is upheld by the word of His power, and that continues to be manifest in the millions upon millions of subplots in the lives of every human being that He's made. He's certainly the master storyteller, and each and every one of us is playing our part as we live out the lives that unfold before us. And when you have a well-written story, whether told in book form or through uh, maybe in a TV series of some kind, there are chapters or episodes that might not seem as important as others. And you might be left to wonder how it's connected to the overall arc of the story or what it has to do with the main characters, etc. It could be that there's some small detail or a brief scene that proves significant later on. And it's only then that you realize how, how it all fits together, which can be part of what makes the experience of the novel or show that much more enjoyable. Well, there's something of that going on here in Genesis 40 in this relatively familiar story of the cupbearer and baker, which follows the rather more action-packed or even scandalous chapters of 37 to 39. You know, what's a story about a cupbearer and a baker in comparison to the drama Joseph faced when having to deal with Potiphar's wife in chapter 39? You know, chapter 40 seems to pale in comparison. A butler, as some translations read, a baker. That might make us think of a nursery rhyme. Or we wonder what on earth they could have done to cause the king to throw them into prison. The text never tells us. We think of a butler as a type of waiter, so what did he do? Not set out the king's clothes properly? Or if he is a cupbearer, did he give the king some bad wine? What did the baker do? Mess up the bread, not cook what the king wanted? Do we somehow imagine Pharaoh as a temperamental tyrant that acts like a spoiled child who, for no good reason at all, threw these men into prison? I suppose that's possible, but again, we're, we're not told what the two men did, and we probably need to steer away from the cartoonish Sunday school depictions of this account if we're going to have an accurate understanding of what the writer is setting before us. There are a number of important themes present in this chapter, and the writer would have us to see them and note them and understand how they're progressing Joseph's story. And still more, the Holy Spirit would have us to see Jesus portrayed in this text in the experience of Joseph, and also gain a greater understanding of our own experience and calling in the world. Verse 1 tells us that the events of chapter 40 followed some time after the events of chapter 39. But when we take into consideration the information supplied elsewhere in Genesis about Joseph's age and, and number of years reported in relation to his time in Egypt, we can make a relatively safe guess that he's about 28 years old at this point having been in Egypt roughly 11 years. Verse 1 also introduces us to the cupbearer and baker. And in what manner are they referred to? The cupbearer is the cupbearer of the king of Egypt. And the baker and cupbearer committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. Two times in verse 1, is mention is made of the king of Egypt. In verse 2, he's called Pharaoh. But verse 1, king of Egypt, it's almost as if the writer is going out of his way for, for you to make an association in relation to the king of Egypt. And what association might that be? That he's a king connected to food and drink, even 
bread and wine. But he's not the first king to be viewed in this light in Genesis. Melchizedek, the king of Salem, is directly linked with bread and wine back in Genesis 14. Perhaps we are to compare the two, which we'll do later on. So tuck that away for now. But we need to understand something about these royal officers. First of all, the cupbearer should probably be understood as more of an advisor to the king. For him to be a cupbearer, the cup would have symbolized that he was a counselor to the king, helping him render judgments and make important decisions for the nation's well-being. Nehemiah served in this same position to King Artaxerxes. Sometimes it's commonly held that the cupbearer was the guy that drank from the king's cup first to make sure it wasn't poisoned, and that could be. But that's also something a slave could do, someone expendable. So while it's possible the cupbearer served this function, it's probably not the first thing we should think of. Second, the baker, while he may have been an actual baker, as we think, it's more likely that he also held an official position in the king's court and was something like the secretary of agriculture. In that day and time, Egypt produced a tremendous amount of bread. Egypt was a bread basket, even as later chapters will reveal, when all of the world comes to them for grain during the famine. You know, you, and you make bread out of grain. Still more, Egypt had some 50 to 60 different types of bread that they made and had discovered yeast and how to use it in baking their bread. And it was an intensely guarded secret. Very likely this baker not only supervised bread baking, but also was responsible for overseeing the grain crops, what was planted and harvested, and was responsible for ensuring the secret about yeast was kept. So again, don't just think of this guy as the palace cook who messed up a meal and made Pharaoh mad. That's too small of a picture. Well, these two fellows are sent to the royal prison, to the house of the captain of the guard. And who is the captain of the guard according to chapter 39 and verse 1? Potiphar. The writer wants you to make this connection, uh, to do a little sleuthing to connect these dots between these chapters. These two men end up in the same prison where Joseph was confined. Potiphar appoints Joseph to minister to them. He trusts Joseph and knows he'll do his job well. Further evidence that Potiphar may not have fully believed his wife's story, as we noted last week. So, verses 1 through 4 set the stage. They act as the intro for the rest of the story. And the two officials are there for some time. And then in verses 5 through 8, we have the next scene that progresses the story a little bit more. Not a lot. But there are some interesting details to consider. First of all, there's a fair amount of repetition in the text. The reason for which isn't entirely clear to me, so if you have a good idea, let me know. But verse 5 tells us, One night they both dreamed a dream. Who? The cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison. Again, all of that detail seems unnecessary, but there it is. But note again that they both dreamed a dream. That can give an initial impression that it was the same dream. In a way it was, as we'll go on to see. So there's a sense of unity to the dreams. And yet there are clearly two different dreams. So there's also distinction. What purpose does the number two serve in Scripture? Two witnesses. These dreams act as witnesses to something. What is it? Judgment. One to deliverance, the other to destruction. But we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. So also notice then, when do these dreams come to these men? Well, at night. That might seem obvious, but it's not an irrelevant detail. Can you make right judgments about things at night in the dark? No, you can't, because you can't see. Then notice verse 6. 
when Joseph came to them in the morning. See, these men were in the dark, they're in the night, but Joseph comes to them in the light, in the daytime, and he is the light in a manner of speaking. And because it's daylight and because Joseph is wise, what does the text tell us next? He saw them and beheld that they were troubled. Joseph sees and comes to certain conclusions about the men. Uh, Recall that eyes are organs of judgment. And Joseph noticed their countenances. Verse 7. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house. Again, notice the the seemingly unnecessary repetition of details. Why are your faces downcast today? They replied, we have dreamed a dream and there's no one to interpret them. And then Joseph evangelizes to them and declares, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell me. Please tell them to me. Now, as we noted in relation to Potiphar, he seemed to know Yahweh. And why? Well, because of Joseph's witness. Similarly, these two men were under Joseph's immediate care. It isn't hard to imagine him witnessing to them as well. They know the God that that Joseph is referring to because Joseph has told them about him. Now, a couple of things we need to remember or understand. Back in chapter 37, when Joseph had two dreams, his dreams acted as the word of God to him, his brothers, and to Jacob. The dreams were prophetic. They were foretelling the future. And Joseph understood what was meant by the dreams. Clearly, these dreams in chapter 40 also functioned in a similar fashion, and dreams were viewed differently in the ancient world than today. Our dreams are about the past. Uh, They're the way our brains deal with things in our memories, what's on our minds, such as fears, anxieties, things we're excited about, etc. The combinations of which can sometimes be pretty interesting, but, but they don't have any real meaning. Most of our dreams we don't even remember. But the dreams we're talking about here aren't that kind. And these royal officials are upset. There's no one to interpret them. Think about it. They're in prison. They can't confer with their fellow officials, the magicians or wise men, to find out the meaning of their dream. But Joseph's reply is interesting and revealing. Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. By asking the men to tell him their dreams, what role is Joseph taking? One of a mediator, of dream interpreter. He's essentially claiming that he understands interpretations that belong to God. Significantly, this chapter establishes Joseph as the interpreter of dreams, much like Daniel, who will later discern future events when others are left in the dark. Joseph is acting as the interpreter of Scripture. These dreams preach, and it's through the voice of Joseph that their message is heard and understood. Joseph is, for all intents and purposes, functioning as the Word of God to these men, even as he will to Pharaoh himself in the next chapter. And I don't think it's pressing the text too much to see Joseph as an incarnate Word of God in a manner of speaking. This principle even applies after Jesus, as Paul declares in Romans 10. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? See, Joseph serves that function, fills that office in this text, even as we go on to see. Well, the cupbearer goes first and shares his dream in verses 9 to 13. And Joseph gives the interpretation to the dream. And when we listen to the details of the text, I don't know about you, but the interpretation that Joseph gives isn't immediately obvious. The number three is important in both dreams. 
But with the cupbearer, there was a vine. And what do vines produce? Grapes, which are then made into wine. The cupbearer had Pharaoh's cup in his hand. He had authority and control over it. He then took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's palm on the, on the flat of his hand. Joseph get, then gives the interpretation in verses 12 to 13. The three branches equal three days. And in three days, Pharaoh will lift up the cupbearer's head and restore him to his office. And he'll serve as he did before, placing the cup in the king's hand. And then we come to verses 14 and 15, which are thematically the center of the text. And we hear Joseph's appeal to the cupbearer to remember him to Pharaoh in order to get him out of the prison house. The word translated kindness is hesed. It's the word most often used in relation to God's promised love, his covenant love for his people. So Joseph seems to be saying, I've done this kindness to you. Now return the favor based on the relationship we have. And so this this is memorial language. Then verse 15, For I was stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. Now how was Joseph stolen? Well, he was kidnapped by his brothers and sold into slavery. The reference to the land of the Hebrews is interesting. But Joseph is also citing his innocence in relation to the events of chapter 39 and why he had to end up in the prison house, which he calls the pit. The same word is used back in chapter 37 of the pit, the cistern that Joseph's brothers placed him in before selling him to the Ishmaelites. Well, I don't think Joseph is referring to the prison house as a literal pit. There's clearly a connection being made back to chapter 37, and the fact that he's suffering unjustly. The writer continues to portray him as the suffering seed. He's going through these death experiences. He's been put to death unjustly, and not just by his own brothers, but also by these Gentiles, these Egyptians. So there's a sense where we're getting this picture that the whole world is against him. Certainly that reminds us of a greater Joseph, a greater servant who was put to death by his brothers and the Romans. Certainly we are to see Jesus' own experience in what we're reading about here in Genesis 40. Well, inspired by the favorable interpretation that the cupbearer received, the baker shares his dream, and we notice the prominence of the number three again. The baker's dream is shorter. He's entirely passive in the dream. And Pharaoh is not present, but birds are. We read that the baker had three cake baskets on his head, and given the baking expertise of the Egyptians, these were filled with things like pastries or cake, as the word is translated, and not just simply loaves of bread. Verse 17 indicates that there was a variety, but the birds were eating out of the basket. So Joseph gives the interpretation. The three baskets are three days, and in three days the baker's head would also be lifted up, but clean off his body, he'll be hanged. And we have to understand that the hanging on a tree is not like the Wild West where the rope uh, with a noose was used, but uh, a tree may refer to a pike, a large wooden spike, um, as we considered when we studied Esther, so that the person was impaled upon it. Perhaps the idea is even that his corpse would be nailed to a tree in some form or fashion. But this is a cursed death and a gruesome death, as his body would have been on public display. And according to Egyptian religion, the baker's spirit would have been prevented from resting in the afterlife. Joseph equates the baked goods with the baker's flesh, since the birds will come and eat his flesh while his body is hanging on the tree, carrion birds also being a sign of judgment. 
the connection between bread and flesh is hardly lost on us and is perfectly consistent with biblical imagery. What's bread made out of? A plant. And plants are often representative of men in Scripture. As one pastor notes, plants come from the ground just as man is formed from the ground. Man takes the world into himself, incorporating the world into himself. So in one sense, you are what you eat. The birds eating the the bread, the flesh, has reference to the covenant curse. When Abraham split the animals in two back in chapter 15 for the covenant ceremony, he had to scare the birds away from the dead flesh to show that it was not under the curse. Scripture later, from this perspective, makes it clear that birds eating the flesh are a sign of covenant curse. Deuteronomy 28, 26 in the New King James, Your carcasses shall be food for all the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and no one shall frighten them away. That last part, an allusion to what Abraham did. Well, in verses 20 to 23, we have the resolution of the story, and Joseph's interpretations are proved to be correct. The third day was Pharaoh's birthday, whether his actual birthday or the day he became king. The king of Egypt is debated. But for this official event, the king needs all of his royal officials, and so the cupbearer and baker are needed. There are, after all, rituals to maintain. The third day is also a day of judgment. Now, we rightly associate it with resurrection, which is true enough, but the resurrection was a judgment in and of its own right. The resurrection vindicated Jesus. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Romans 1.4. But the resurrection is also a form of judgment upon death. Isn't that essentially what Paul's declaring throughout all of 1 Corinthians 15? And upon this third day in Genesis 40, two different kinds of judgments are rendered, one unto life and the other unto death. Also, the fact that these judgments take place in relation to a feast, a birthday party, is hardly coincidental either. Feasts are times for evaluations to take place. That was the case in the Old Covenant for Israel, and Paul teaches as much in 1 Corinthians 11 in relation to the Lord's Supper in the New Covenant. Now, one of the interesting dynamics in our text this morning is that it's a pagan king rendering judgments. It's a pagan king that's controlling bread and wine. But in the chapters to come, that's going to change. For all intents and purposes, Joseph will replace Pharaoh as the provider of bread. Joseph will even have his own cup as the king's advisor, a symbol of his office. And while the pagan king may claim these things for the present, they're God's symbols first, and God's man will reclaim them in time after more waiting and suffering. And it could be that we are to get the impression that Pharaoh is selfish with these things, that he seeks to serve himself first, and the bread and wine are first for him. But Joseph will be like a Melchizedek, a righteous priest and king, a ruler who feeds others. And more still, Jesus is the greater Pharaoh and the greater Melchizedek, the king who provides bread and wine. Well, the final sentence leaves us in sad suspense. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And so he's left to suffer a while longer, to continue in humiliation, to continue to serve in the prison house. And we shouldn't be too quick to forget the emphatic truth of chapter 39, that Yahweh was with Joseph. So even in this present setback, that still remains to be the case. The time is not yet for him to be exalted, 
for him to be given the kingdom. Well, as we conclude this morning, what are some other observations that we can make and what principles should be impressed upon us? Well, notice that there's a sense in which Joseph is greater than his father Jacob and greater than great-grandpa Abraham. How so? Well, Abraham had a dream, a vision at night back in chapter 15. Jacob had a dream at Bethel in chapter 28, and then another dream of his is mentioned in chapter 31. And Abraham and Jacob received promises and instruction. But Joseph seems to take things a step further and is able to interpret dreams. Joseph is particularly portrayed as a man in whom is the Spirit of God. Joseph has a ministry to the Gentiles, even a prophetic ministry, which foreshadows the prophetic ministry that would be prevalent when Israel was in exile and bondage in Babylon. Joseph is a picture of the gospel going to the nations. Perhaps we can even say that Joseph is a a Pentecostal believer ahead of his time. Though, of course, he's precisely where the Lord wants him to be at exactly the right moment. And doesn't Joseph's faithfulness in proclaiming the word in his given station and circumstance of life set before us an example to do the same wherever God has placed us? whether the circumstances are favorable or less than favorable. You know, just, say, four years ago, we might have thought that things were relatively favorable. You know, the economy seemed to be running along, gas prices were reasonable and whatnot, but but all that's changed, and in a fairly short period of time. So what should our perspective be? Well, Joseph essentially exemplifies the principle of what Jeremiah would later declare. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. You and I are called to the same, whether in Nashville, Franklin, Spring Hill, Thompson Station, Hartsville, Springfield, Fairview, Columbia, or wherever you live. And as people who have the indwelling Holy Spirit, who have God's Word, we can live with wisdom in this world here and now. And we have answers to things that the world, apart from Christ, does not have. And so we shouldn't hesitate to speak, to share what's God, what God's Word says, to be incarnations of, of God's Word to others, even in further exemplifying what Paul teaches in Romans 10. There's also a sense that we have knowledge of the future, even the all-important second coming of Christ. And what kind of judgments will be rendered on that day? Two kinds, a judgment unto life and a judgment unto death. Jesus, the King of Kings, will render such judgments. One, a resurrection unto eternal life. The other, resurrection unto judgment and eternal death. And to this King, we give thanks that He provides us with bread and wine. Bread that is His flesh and wine that is His blood. Flesh and blood that are memorials that declare what He has accomplished for us that he took the curse of death upon himself, that he was hanged upon a tree 
in order to deliver us. We have the hope of eternal life to come because of the suffering servant who is vindicated in his resurrection from the dead. The servant who is, to be, who is declared to be a son and a king. And if your present circumstance is one of suffering, in whatever form or fashion that may take, then consider again how Joseph suffered and how that's a picture of Jesus' own suffering, even as Peter exhorts in his first letter. But if when you do good and suffer... But if, you, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus entrusted himself to him who judges justly, as did Joseph, and so must we. After humiliation comes exaltation. That's God's pattern for his people, for his servants. And so we patiently wait upon him. And take heart that he does not, nor will not, forget you. He remembers even as the memorials of bread and wine are set before him at the table of his son, the king, the table that his son has prepared for us. And so let us now eagerly come to that table in order to receive strength for this life that he has called us to live in whatever chapter that may presently be. Even nourishment and encouragement is here for each and every one of us to continue to play the part that we've been given and to which we're called in the grand and glorious story that our great God is telling. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we again thank you for your word, for the marvelous way in which it is written and for the manner in which you seek to impress the truth upon our hearts and lives. In considering and meditating upon Genesis 40 this day, may we see the Lord Jesus Christ all the more clearly. May we be strengthened all the more for the life to which you call us, and may we do so faithfully. And may we come with eagerness and joy and anticipation now to the table of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.